everyone. Welcome back to the Yale Vascular Review. We're your hosts, Kayuri and Ocean, and we're excited to bring you this latest episode with some great research papers over the last few months. This month, we revisited peripheral arterial disease, but we will be focusing on open intervention-based research. And once again, we included papers from Journal of Vascular Surgery, European Journal of Vascular Surgery, and Annals of Vascular Surgery. Ocean, as we're entering the new year, I want to do something new for this episode. Of course, Kiori. What are you thinking? How about starting this episode with our guest speaker and presenting research from our very own Yale Vascular colleagues? I love that idea. Sounds great. So please welcome our guest speaker for today, Dr. Cassius Char. Thank you so much, Dr. Char, for taking the time to join us today. Good afternoon, and thank you for the invitation for this podcast. I will be talking to you about a paper that we recently published in the Journal of Vascular Surgery in December of 2021. First author by Dr. Tanner Kim, who's our outstanding chief resident, who I had the honor and the privilege to train, but also to work with on multiple research projects. Our co-authors are Dr. Yahweh Zhang, Jonathan Cardella, and Raul Guzman, and myself. And the title of the paper is Outcomes of Bypass and Endovascular Interventions for Advanced Femoropopliteal Disease in Patients with Premature Peripheral Arterial Disease. We define patients with premature peripheral arterial disease at an age of less than or equal 50 years of age. The percentage of patients in that age group constitutes less than 5% of all patients who undergo lower extremity revascularization. And this builds on prior work that Tanner and I worked on. We published a paper a year prior in 2020 looking at the relationship of age and major amputation after lower extremity revascularization in the VQI. And we showed that the major amputation at one month and one year for patients with premature PAD were significantly higher than older patients group. And there was a very linear and proportional relationship where with every increasing decade of age, the risk of major amputation at 30 days and at one year slowly decreased. And since that patient population with premature PAD is at high risk of amputation and are likely more fit for open surgery, we wanted to compare which modality is best for revascularization for that group of patients. We selected the patients with more advanced disease, task C or D, and those typically either undergo endovascular surgery or open surgery. And we looked at those two groups of patients. So in our study, we had a total of 2,538 patients that had premature peripheral arterial disease and had lower extremity revascularization. Those patient populations were different between the endovascular and open. So we actually matched the patients for preoperative characteristics So after matching, we ended up with 466 patients who had endovascular treatment and 466 patients who had a lower extremity bypass. And the two groups were pretty much comparable in terms of their baseline comorbidities. Both groups approximately had elective procedure in in more than 80% of the cases with a smaller percentage that had urgent or emergent treatment. The majority of patients were treated for CLTI, with tissue loss in approximately 30 to 40% of the cases and rest pain in 15 to 19%. And looking at the perioperative outcomes, not surprisingly, the patient with the open bypass had a longer length of stay and were less likely discharged to home. The patient after a bypass did have higher cardiac complications and renal complications, as well as infections. 
there were more access site complications in the endovascular group. Overall, the rate of any complication was 12% after open bypass and 7.9% after endovascular procedures. The amputation rate was no different and the mortality rate was not different. However, at one year, there was no difference between the two groups in terms of major amputation, and the major amputation rate was 7.9% in the endovascular group and 7.7% in the open surgery group with a 5% mortality in each. However, the reintervention rate was significantly higher in the endovascular group, and that was 25.2% compared to 17%. That is our conclusion that in that group of patients with premature peripheral arterial disease, an open surgery may have less reintervention. Of course, open surgery carries more perioperative complication and longer hospital stay. Thank you, Dr. Char. That was wonderfully explained. It's always a pleasure learning from you, and we really appreciate that you took the time to join us today. Thank you very much for the invitation. The second paper on our list to discuss today is from January edition of Journal of Vascular Surgery, published by Dr. Bradbury and Dr. Popperwell from University of Birmingham, UK. The title is Procedural and 12-Month In-Hospital Costs of Primary Infrapopliteal Bypass Surgery, Infrapopliteal Best Endovascular Treatment, and Major Lower Limb Amputation for Chronic Limb-Threatening Ischemia. They mentioned that there are only a few studies that have compared the relative cost-effectiveness of different CLTI management strategies. The bypass versus angioplasty in severe ischemia of the leg, or BASIL-2 trial, is randomizing patients with CLTI to primary infrapopliteal vein bypass surgery or best endovascular treatment and includes a comprehensive within-trial cost-utility analysis. The aim of this study is to compare over 12 months the cost of primary infrapopliteal vein bypass surgery, infrapopliteal best endovascular treatment, and major limb major amputation to inform the basal 2 cost utility analysis. But before we get further into this paper, Kiyuri, do you want to briefly teach us about basal 1 and 2? Sure. So BASIL-1 was a randomized clinical trial that compared open versus endovascular intervention for CLTI. Briefly, the conclusion was that in patients presenting with severe limb ischemia due to infrainguinal disease and who are suitable for surgery and angioplasty, a bypass surgery first and a balloon angioplasty first strategy are associated with broadly similar outcomes in terms of amputation-free survival, and in the short term, surgery is more expensive than angioplasty. The trial generated a lot of discussion, and follow-up studies are underway. Yes, BASIL-2 is the ongoing trial and aims to look at clinical and cost-effectiveness of a vein bypass first or a best endovascular treatment first revascularization strategy for infrapopliteal disease. Awesome. Looking forward to interesting results from these ongoing trials. Now, going back to this current paper that we were discussing, procedural human resource costs were greatest for bypass surgery due to longer procedure duration and greater staff requirement. With regard to the index admission, major limb amputation was the most expensive due to longer hospital stay. The total cost of the index admission and in-hospital care over the following 12 months remained least for best endovascular treatment. Over a 12-month period, major limb amputation and infrapopliteal bypass surgery are more expensive than infrapopliteal 
best endovascular treatment in terms of procedural human resource costs and total in-hospital costs. Wow, that was such a good teaching discussion on the basal trials. Agree. And now it's time for the next paper. Kiri, can you take the lead on that one? <laughs> I can. <laughs> I see what you did there. Just spicing up the discussion. This next paper is from the September JVS titled Prosthetic versus Native Artery Inflow for Infrainguinal Bypass. The authors include Dr. Russo and Dr. Darling from Albany Medical Center Hospital in New York. The purpose of the study was to compare the outcomes of infrainguinal bypass using the hood of a previous inflow bypass versus the native artery as the inflow source. A single vascular groups database was queried for all cases of infrainguinal bypass performed after previous prosthetic inflow bypass to a femoral artery from January 2006 to December 2016. Two groups were compared stratified by the location of the proximal anastomosis for the distal bypass. So Curie, basically, in one group, the inflow source for the distal bypass was from the hood of a previous inflow graft, and in the second group, the distal native arterial tree was used as the inflow source? Yes, you've got it. A total of 197 patients were included in this study. Of these, 30% had used the hood of the previous bypass as the inflow source, the prosthetic group, and 70% had used the native artery distal to the hood of the inflow bypass as their inflow source, which was the native group. The native artery used for the inflow source in the native group was the profunda femoris in 58%, common femoral artery in 37%, and superficial femoral artery in 5%. Patency was significantly greater for the native group at one year, 91% versus 75%. Also, the patency after inflow bypass occlusion significantly favored the native group at one year, at 87% versus 40%. The study demonstrated greater patency rates when using the distal native artery as the inflow source. The native artery option also offered continued patency when the inflow bypass occluded. That's really interesting. Good to know. Speaking of infrainguinal bypass techniques, this reminds me of a paper which we can discuss next. This was published by Dr. Siegler and Dr. Saldana Ruiz from USC, California in September JVS, titled Effect of Infrainguinal Bypass Tunneling Technique on Patency and Amputation in Patients with Limb Ischemia. They queried the National VQI Database Infrainguinal Bypass Module from 2008 to 2017, the main exposure variable was the tunneling type subcutaneously versus subfascially. Wait, so subfascially meaning under the fascia layer, so that's comparatively deeper than the subcutaneous technique? Yes, Kiri. About 5,500 bypass patients were included in this study. Of these, 2,800 were subcutaneous and 2,700 were subfascial. Multivariate analyses demonstrated that the tunneling type was not associated with primary patency, primary assisted patency, secondary patency, or major amputation. Compared with subfascial tunneling, the superficial tunneling technique was not associated with primary patency or major amputation in limb ischemia patients undergoing infrainguinal bypass with a single segment great saphenous vein. You know, Ocean, reading these papers comparing different techniques, devices, etc., I wonder if it matters in terms of patient outcomes how much experience one has had doing these operations. 
That is a really important question, Kiri. And you know what? We did find a paper in um, December issue of Journal of Vascular Surgery that answered this question for us. Right. That paper was a good read. It was titled, Surgeon Experience versus Volume Differentially Affects Lower Extremity Bypass Outcomes in Contemporary Practice. And the authors for this paper include Dr. Scully, Dr. Goodney, and Dr. Stone. A total of about 26,000 procedures with sufficient one-year follow-up data from the VQI Infrainguinal Bypass Registry from 2003 to 2019 were reviewed for chronic limb-threatening ischemia among patients undergoing infragenoculate reconstruction. The procedures were categorized according to surgeon years of practice experience at surgery and the number of lower extremity bypass procedures performed by the surgeon during the year of surgery. They found increasing practice experience was more significantly associated with the reduction of in-hospital complications and the risk of major adverse limb events compared with the volume. Increasing experience and volume were both associated with increased freedom from thrombosis. In contrast, neither experience nor volume had any significant association with early mortality. However, a higher volume was associated with diminished long-term survival. The most experienced surgeons, greater than 15 years of experience, were significantly more likely to perform lower extremity bypass for rest pain. The most experienced and highest volume surgeons were more likely to use an autogenous and or composite conduit, in situ reconstruction, and or pedal targets. Similarly, more experienced and higher volume surgeons had less blood loss and shorter procedure times. Overall, the most experienced surgeons were significantly more likely to have a higher volume with a diminished risk for all lower extremity bypass outcomes. Right. These findings have significant clinical and educational implications as our most experienced surgeons approach retirement. Mentorship strategies to facilitate ongoing technical development among less experienced surgeons are imperative to sustain optimal limb salvage outcomes and have significant ramifications regarding expectations for regulatory and credentialing paradigms. Surgeon experience definitely plays an important role in outcomes, but I think several other factors are important to consider as well. I agree. There is an interesting paper published in January Journal of Vascular Surgery that looked into that. Authors are Dr. Sagal and Dr. Hughes. The title is The Influence of Socioeconomic Status on Outcomes of Lower Extremity Arterial Reconstruction. Patients 40 years and older who had surgical revascularization for severe lower extremity peripheral arterial disease were identified in the nationwide readmissions database from 2010 to 2014. Of about 132,000 patients, 61% were male and the average age was 69 years. Measures of socioeconomic status, including median household income quartiles of patients' residential zip codes, were extracted. On unadjusted analyses, subsequent amputations were higher among patients in the lowest median household income quartile compared with patients in the highest median household income quartile. On multivariable analysis, compared with patients in the lowest quartile, those in the highest quartile had lower amputation and readmission rates. However, subsequent revascularization and mortality rates were not different across the groups. So they explained that lower socioeconomic status is associated with disproportionately worse outcomes following lower extremity arterial reconstruction for severe PAD. Yes, and I think, Curie, this is one of those important but frequently underreported topics. Now that we have talked a bit about all of these different factors determining outcomes in PAD, 
I wanted to turn our attention to some newer techniques being used to assess successful lower extremity revascularization with non-invasive methods. I have two papers to highlight here. The first one is from the November issue of Annals of Vascular Surgery and is titled Diagnostic Validation Study, Relationship Between Optical Spectroscopy and Ankle Brachial Index Tests for Peripheral Arterial Disease. The authors were Dr. Alesil and Dr. Alvaro from University Hospital La Paz in Madrid, Spain. This was a prospective observational study. 60 patients with PAD were included. Ankle pressure and tissue oximetry were measured in 70 lower limbs, in 45 of them before and after revascularization. Compared to ankle pressure, tissue oximetry was able to detect improvement in absolute values and indices after revascularization. They observed a significant positive correlation in absolute values of both tests. So the conclusion is that they confirmed tissue oximetry is able to detect improvement after revascularization of lower limbs? Yes, and now the second paper, also from November Annals of Vascular Surgery, is titled Feasibility of Photo-Optical Transcutaneous Oxygen Tension Measurement During Revascularization of the Lower Extremity. The authors include Dr. Leenstra and Dr. Verhoeven from the Netherlands. Ten patients scheduled for revascularization of the lower extremities were enrolled. PTCPO2 values of the affected lower extremity were measured preoperatively during revascularization and after revascularization. Results were compared to the pre- and post-operative ankle brachial index and to perioperative angiography. Two out of 12 measurements were unsuccessful. Eight out of 10 patients experienced significant clinical improvement and PTCPO2 increase. Two patients that did not experience clinical improvement corresponded with no changes in intraoperative angiography and without increase in ABI or PTCPO2. A significant and strong correlation was found between prior and after revascularization ABI and PTCPO2 measurements. Photo-optical transcutaneous oxygen tension measurement may serve as an intraoperative tool to evaluate the success of revascularization. Thank you, Curie. That was a nice brief overview of these two papers. Yes, of course. By the way, Ocean, I remember scrubbing in on a bypass case with you during my vascular rotation and hearing a lot of discussion about what's the best way to prevent groin wound infections in patients undergoing surgical interventions for lower extremity PAD. Yeah, that is definitely a topic that always generates a lot of discussions and opinions. Why don't we talk about a few papers about this topic? Yeah, right. The first one that I want to highlight is from Dr. Van Dam and Dr. Vager from the Netherlands, titled Clinical Relevance of Closed Incision Negative Pressure Therapy for Surgical Site Infection Risk Reduction in Vascular Surgery Through a Groin Incision. This was published in the January issue of Annals of Vascular Surgery. In the single-center prospective cohort study, 59 patients with 67 incisions were included between January and October 2019. All patients underwent elective vascular surgery with groin incisions for either lower limb revascularization surgery or abdominal aortic aneurysm surgery. The study group was treated with six days Provena incision management system and matched for equal comparison to a historically retrospectively analyzed cohort of 54 consecutive patients. The standard care group was treated following standard surgical wound care protocol with conventional surgical self-adhesive plaster. Study groups were comparable at baseline, except for BMI, which was significantly higher in the negative pressure therapy group. Groin surgical site infections were seen in 12% of the patients in the negative pressure therapy group and in 13% in the standard care group. 
Deep surgical site infections contributed for four out of seven patients of total surgical site infections in the negative pressure therapy group, and for two out of seven patients in the standard of care group. Subset analyses in both study groups showed that only deep surgical site infections resulted in re-interventions. Based on the findings in the population of this single-center study, they concluded that routine use of negative pressure therapy was not effective in reducing groin wound complications and therefore could not replicate the promising findings that were shown in some other studies. That is really interesting, Kiyori. So there is another paper about the surgical site infections worth mentioning here. This was in January edition of Annals of Vascular Surgery from Dr. Zhao and Dr. Jansen from the University of Western Australia. The title is, Gentamicin-containing collagen implants may reduce surgical site infections after open infrainguinal arterial revascularization. This was a retrospective observational cohort study that included all patients undergoing infrainguinal arterial bypass or endartrectomy between November 2015 and March 2019 at a single tertiary vascular unit. In 159 procedures, 55 procedures received gentamicin-containing collagen implants. There were significantly more males, 85% versus 69%, higher rates of obesity, 42% versus 26%, and hyperlipidemia, 65% versus 49% in the gentamicin-collagen implant group. In total, six procedures developed deep space surgical site infections, one was gentamicin-containing collagen implant, and five without and 13 had severe surgical site infections that required reintervention. Again, one with gentamicin collagen implant and 12 without. On logistic regression analysis, the absence of gentamicin-containing collagen implants significantly increased the odds of overall surgical site infections. Gentamicin-containing collagen implants may reduce the odds of overall surgical site infections, it did not reduce the odds of deep space surgical site infections or the severity and reintervention rates of surgical site infections following infrainguinal arterial revascularization. Ocean, these papers we just discussed seem to be focused on preventative measures, but the next paper I want to mention here is slightly different. The title is Results of Obturator Foramen Bypass in Patients with Groin Infection and Arterial Involvement, published by Dr. Dunphy and Dr. Abramowitz from MedStar Hospital in D.C. in the August issue of Annals of Vascular Surgery. Arterial bypass tunneling via the obturator foramen can be performed to circumvent groin infections during lower extremity revascularization. The objective of the study is to report safety and efficacy outcomes of obturator foramen bypass in the setting of infected femoral pseudoaneurysms and infected prosthetic femoral bypass grafts. A multi-hospital, single-entity healthcare system retrospective review was conducted for all patients who underwent obturator foramen bypass between January 2014 through June 2020. 17 patients were included. The mean operative time was 307 minutes, and the mean estimated blood loss was 500 milliliters. In total, 41% of patients underwent fluoroscopic guided tunneling and, when compared to blind tunneling, showed no difference in intraoperative complications or operative time. Two major amputations were reported during follow-up. Patient mortality within 30 days was 0%, and primary patency within 30 days was 100%. So they concluded that obturator foramen bypass is a safe and effective surgical option in patients who are unable to undergo anatomic tunneling during lower extremity bypass. Great. Thanks, Kiri. And that concludes our episode. 
Once again, it is a pleasure bringing you all a quick one-stop shop version of some high-impact research from the vascular world. This episode is the last topic of our first season. We'll be back with some more great research in season two, as well as some surprise topics. As this season one is coming to an end, in preparation for our next season, we will be sharing a link to a five-minute survey with some questions about your experience listening to this podcast. The link can be found in the description as well as on Twitter. We would really appreciate if you could all take a few minutes to fill it out when you have a chance. And five individuals who fill out the survey will be randomly selected for a prize. And on that note, the winner for last month's episode is Tara Zilke. Congrats, Tara! We're really excited to share that we have over 1,000 listeners in over 30 countries so far. And in all continents, right? Well, except one, Kayuri. Right. So we need your guys' help to hashtag Antarctica Vascular and get them to listen to the podcast. Once again, please feel free to leave feedback on our Twitter or Instagram posts, and be sure to subscribe to Yale Vascular Review on Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Thanks everyone for tuning in this month and accompanying us as we bypass those clogged arteries and make our way into the new year. And until then, don't skip leg day. On vascular, every day is leg day. (laughs) 